Welcome to Embracing Death. I'm your host, Julia. Each week, I'll be chatting with someone who has a unique relationship to death in an attempt to better cope with my own inevitable mortality. I work as a nurse and I specialize in emergency medicine, and I've been exposed to death quite a bit, but that's not what got me the most interested in talking about death. In August of 2019, I woke up with an intense anxiety and obsessive thoughts about death. And I finally realized in the most intense way that I was actually gonna die someday. And that day kind of felt like today. Luckily for me, three years later, I'm still alive. But over the last three years, the thoughts have continued to grow and affect the way that I lived my life. So in the winter of 2019 and 2020, I went to therapy, I started taking medication, I tried to meditate, I did sensory deprivation therapy, I tried purposeful movement, flat out denying the thoughts. Anything you could think of really, I tried to do. And I realized that it wasn't going to work. I can't keep running anymore. I'm gonna have to face the thoughts in order to better cope and understand them. I know that we're all going to die, but maybe there's a better way to relate to it, without fear, without anxiety, Maybe there is a way to not only accept death, but to actually embrace it. And the best way to learn, to grow and understand, in my opinion, is to talk with others. And that is exactly what this show is. So let's get into my very first guest, Robert. In this episode, Robert talks about how heartburn can lead to a near-death experience, how being dead doesn't hurt, and how you can still crack jokes from the other side. Hi, my name is Robert. I experienced a near-death experience um, August the 6th of 2021. I asked Robert what he believes were the biggest contributing factors to him having a heart attack at a relatively young age. And aside from not taking the best physical care of himself that he could, he attributes most of it to stress. Um, just, just a lot of stress, work, things like that. Uh, I, I really believe that that's what led up to the beginning stages of the heart attack uh, at a fairly early age. How old was Robert when he had his heart attack? Well, I'm in my 40s. So, yeah, I know people have heart attacks when they're in their, in their 20s. You know, I, I realize that. But when you think heart attack, you think of, you know, some out of shape, 60, 70, 80 year old man, you know, and you just don't think about that. I mean, I'm, I've always stayed pretty active, hike a lot, plan on doing the AT, Appalachian Trail next year. I've never even concerned about been concerned about things like that. So, yeah, it was a pretty scary experience. In the week leading up to Robert's heart attack, he started noticing that he was more fatigued than usual, so much so that his loved ones actually expressed some concern for him. On the day of Robert's heart attack, he woke up feeling pretty good. But by that night, then that night, roughly 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, did you know it wasn't really harsh chest pains i just felt like i had extremely bad like heartburn i guess and when they as time went on with that you hear about you know your left arm hurting and things like that my left arm started hurting i've explained this to different people it they ask you know how did your left arm hurt i don't know if a lot of people know what like an archer's cuff is basically it's just a cuff that goes around your elbow and your wrist and like a strap down the inside of your forearm and those are the exact spots that hurt. Eventually, Robert called his girlfriend, who then advised him to call 911 and get an ambulance. He initially was resistant. I was going to go to bed and <laughs> because I'm me and I don't call the doctor ever. 
But my girlfriend basically uh, threatened my life. and said, if I don't call 911, she's going to come down and take care of the problem for me. So I called 911 and I knew a few of the a few of the guys that were actually in the ambulance that night. That they and they knew they knew who it was. They uh, they knew exactly where I lived. They shot to my house pretty quick. They pulled me in the ambulance, started doing a lot of tests on me. Things that I cannot tell you what they're called. Um, <laughs> no idea. So the EMTs were running an EKG on Robert, which is where they take sticky electrodes, they place it on different parts of your chest so they can look at the electrical connectivity of your heart. This is a standard procedure for anyone complaining of chest pain. Robert was then given nitroglycerin, which is a medication used to treat chest pain, and it works by relaxing blood vessels so the heart doesn't need to work as hard and is usually given to people with chest pain. And they had given me a nitro uh, pill, which you just put on your tongue, and just it immediately gives you an, just an instant horrifying headache. They could not make me go to the hospital, but they told me it was in my best interest to go. So after quite some time of talking me into this, I decided to ask if it was okay to go back inside my house. Robert then collects some of his belongings, including his ID and insurance card, and is sure to make sure he gives his dog food and water and lets him out one last time before they head to the emergency department. And I felt okay enough to do all that um, and got back in the ambulance and we, we left out from there. When we got onto the highway heading into you know downtown the hospital, um, I remember him making a statement to the driver that we need to go. So the EMT speed up and get Robert to the hospital safely. So when we get there, uh, they take me out. And I, I was afraid, but I was more worried about people that I had told where I was going, what was happening. I was more worried about how they felt than I was myself. Robert was able to contact his girlfriend, a few friends, and some co-workers on his way to the hospital to fill them in on what was going on. I wasn't hurting at the time. I, I assumed that the nitro pills that they had given me, because they'd given me two at this time, were working. I've never taken one. I've never had a heart attack, so I didn't know how to feel. So I felt pretty decent. Like I was almost wasting a lot of people's time. Like it was a false, a false call. You know, I don't need to be here. This is crazy. Then Robert's loved ones and friends arrived to the emergency department, including his daughter and a few work friends. And at this point, Robert believes that he isn't actually having a heart attack, that he maybe jumped the gun, and it wasn't as serious as he initially thought. Robert's thoughts are reaffirmed by the look on his loved one's faces. By the look on their face at the time, maybe they felt the same way I did. Maybe this was a uh, just a false alarm. So Robert is waiting in the emergency department, and he feels okay, like he should be able to go home. He's hopefully waiting for a discharge from the doctors when suddenly he feels an intense, sharp amount of pain, and he's realizing that things are starting to take a turn. Taking a turn is probably not the best way to explain it. More like uh, falling off a cliff in a burning car. Was a, uh, it was pretty, pretty instant like that. They, uh, the nurses had come in that I'd kind of, sort of made friends with at the time, cracking jokes with her, things like that in the room. She had come in uh, with a few other people. At this point, the emergency doctor came into the room with a few nurses. And immediately told everyone they needed to step out of the room. I, I remember them telling me that I had to get undressed, give my belongings to someone, and they were going to put a gown on me and get me out of this room, it was time to go upstairs. That's when I realized that this is, something's really wrong. It seems that in the blink of an eye, Robert has already changed into a hospital gown. I, I remember in my mind thinking, wow, these, these people are really quick uh, about changing their clothes because I don't remember any of that. I was all of a sudden in a gown. 
Robert and the staff urgently head out of the ER into the cath lab. They wheeled me out of the room, and I saw, you know, my friends, daughter thing, standing against the wall, the hallway wall outside of my room. And as they wheeled me out, I remember looking over at them and seeing the concern on their face. I saw them just breaking down, crying. And I saw a friend of mine from work. I remember seeing him just dropping his head, closing his eyes. It was an odd look, like not of just concern, but sadness. This strikes Robert as a little odd, as he's okay, he's awake, he's just headed up to have this procedure done. And I thought, well, I'm going to be okay. You know, it'll be okay. And although Robert is still awake, his vision goes dark. I remember things kind of going dark at that point, very quiet. And they wheel me around the corner into an elevator. It's dark. I'm not hurting so bad. Um, don't really, I don't really remember hurting at all in the elevator, actually. Um, and I remember hearing the nurses uh, upset and concerned about the situation and the doctor telling them that everything's going to be okay. This is what we're going to do, step-by-step process, very much taking control of the situation. So then Robert is wheeled off of the elevator into the cardiac catheterization lab. And at this point, he can hear the doctors and the nurses still conversing, even though he can't quite see anything. What, From what I remember, them explaining to me what's going to happen. And then they start to go through my wrist. I remember the doctor counting off numbers, like sizes, and them starting to go through my wrist to put in a stent. For those of you who are not familiar... A stent is a device that is inserted into either a femoral or radial artery, and it goes up to find the blockage in the heart, and then it is placed inside that blockage to reopen blood flow to that vessel. The original plan was they were going to go into my wrist, and I remember at some point hearing the doctor tell me that that they could not go through my wrist. Just the way the, the artery was, I guess, behind my heart, they weren't able to get a good run and start at it, I guess. So they decided to go through my groin. And um, I don't remember much after that. So the cardiac catheterization is a success. Robert has a new stent in place. And the next thing he remembers is waking up. I woke up to people, you know, nurses putting pressure on my groin area. Where they go in, it really, it's really swells. You basically just have to stand on it. And that's why I woke up to that pain, putting a, a ton of pressure on that. Um, that's probably the worst I had hurt since I'd come into the ER. Now that Robert is awake and he realizes he is in the recovery room. And then the doctor coming in a few minutes later and, you know, roughly 20, 30 minutes later and explained to me exactly what the procedure they'd done. The doctor reintroducing himself to Robert kind of confuses him. Why did he introduce himself to me? Because we've already spoken. I, I, we've met twice before now, once in the, uh, the ER and... Obviously, I was looking at him dead in the face, cracking jokes with this guy. And I immediately start making jokes to my dog, my doctor, because of his name. His name's you know, Brian Adams. You know, so I start making jokes about him being a singer and taking a side gig as being a doctor. He explains to me the procedure and things like that. And I said, oh, yeah, I remember you, you know, watching you kind of, you know, going through my wrist because I was trying to hold it as still as I could for you. Robert then proceeds to ask the doctor about his friends and family because the last time he remembers seeing them, they were quite upset when he was being moved from the ER to the cardiac cath lab. And then he also asks the doctor how the nurse from the ER is doing because she also seemed quite distraught on the ride up in the elevator. At this point, the doctor seems quite alarmed and asks Robert how he could possibly know all of these things that happened. And Robert's kind of confused and he asks the doctor to elaborate. 
And he told me in, in a very odd voice that that's impossible. Robert, you died in the ER. Even to this day, I can't explain how I felt that moment. I, I just, I felt very, well, this has got to be a joke. He explained to me that the reason they had come in to rush me out and get me to, I guess the operating room is what you call it, upstairs, is because I, I died. Uh, it was over. I do remember a little bit of pain right there in the ER. And then everything just went, everybody was in a rush. So I assume maybe this pain that I had, this initial pain in the ER, was it. I, I guess was the, I died, you know. The doctor starts to explain. But he, he explained to me, he said, no, you, you, you died in the ER. And we got you upstairs and we, you know, got the stint in you very quickly. You know, even with two tries, we got it in very quickly uh, because, you know, after this hospital stay, I did a little research. And it is a very quick process. It's not you know, something that takes forever. But and you were right back away. You were back to normal again. But I was dead in the ER going up the hallway in the elevator and basically through the entire probably first third of this process of this doing, doing, doing the procedure on me. And, and at that point, I had come back and I said, well, wait a minute. You don't remember me making a joke about you being having a side gig, you know, being a doctor? Robert is referring to the joke that he initially made in the ER when he met the doctor who had a very similar name to a Canadian music star. He's Robert, this is the first time we've met. With this new information, Robert starts to process everything that happened to him. After he left the room, I uh, was waiting on my girlfriend to show up. I had a lot of time to think about what really happened. And it's taking me a, a good year to really put these pieces together. You know, what really happened, how I really felt. It's um, <laughs> when he told me I died, I couldn't believe it. It just, everything seemed so real. Robert starts replaying everything in his head and how vividly he actually remembers seeing his friends and his loved ones in the hallway as he's being moved from the emergency department. And my mind was looking over at my friends against the wall. And evidently, I never turned my head. In the elevator, I remember hearing you know, the doctor. I could not see them. It was dark. Um, I just felt like maybe I was just, maybe they had painkillers in me or something like that is what, what I thought in, you know, at the time. Robert also vividly remembers that the pain kind of stops right after he has that intense pain in the emergency department. There, there was no pain. Uh, I felt nothing at that point. I felt the initial pain in the ER. And then after that, it was nothing. I felt very comfortable. Um, it was dark for a while. But I, I, there was no pain at all. I, I was, the only thing I was really, that was really on my mind at, the, at, the, at the, that very moment was friends, family, things like that. Robert tries to explain what that concern for his family actually felt like because it's nothing he's ever experienced before. I, it's very hard to explain. I've tried to go through this in my mind a thousand times. It's very difficult to explain. It wasn't a, a sense of fear. It was just um, a sense of comfort. Robert was more so hoping that his loved ones were okay with what was happening to him. And that feeling really um, kind of washed over me when I was in the procedure room. Aside from just hoping that his family was okay and wanting to give them a sense of comfort, Robert realizes that he actually felt kind of all right with what was happening. Just not having any worry. I didn't, there was no, I didn't miss anyone. I was just concerned for everyone that I cared for in my life. At this point in the experience, Robert understands that this might be the end for him and it's okay 
and how special that he was more focused on who he was leaving behind and how they would be able to cope with the situation. It was the way of, if it's my time to go, then I wasn't, it was kind of that last really nice thought, genuine thought. I mean, a, a nice thought about everyone that you care about. Robert even wants to reiterate how he even attempted to help the doctor while he was in the cardiac cath lab by making jokes, making light of the situation, when in all intents and purposes, Robert was dead at this time. But I remember looking at my wrist very closely, really concentrating on my wrist and holding it as still as I could for him, like he needed help to make sure, hey, bud, I'm going to hold my wrist real still. You do your thing. It's all going to be okay. And cracking jokes to people because this is what I do. Um, to make everybody a little more comfortable. How amazing that even on the other side of life, Robert was still trying to make everyone in the room feel comfortable by cracking jokes. Robert experiences a full recovery and goes on to live the rest of his life. This event happened in August of 2021, so just about a year ago, almost to the very day. And since his recovery, Robert noticed a few things about his life now were a little different than they were previously. And I had asked Robert what kind of things had changed, and he said that he believes that he experiences a paranormal sensitivity now. Let's make Rob look like a nut here for a minute. <laughs> Fairly recently, you know, this year anyway, we, we've gone on a few of these paranormal investigations. We've always been interested in them, and we were able to kind of hook up with these people and, and take a few of these uh, investigation tours. I felt like I have a, a connection, if that makes sense, maybe. I'm, I feel like I'm a little more sensitive to it, maybe, than other people are. I asked Robert if he had any paranormal sensitivity before his heart attack last year. No, there could be a, be a ghost standing in front of me with a hatchet trying to chase me down the hallway and I'm too busy trying to light another cigarette. It never bothered me. I never thought about it. I asked Robert what he believes is the reason behind his newfound ability to sense things that are maybe a little paranormal. Right, and I, and I believe it should, maybe it should open up a little, maybe a, a portion of your mind, a little, a little more open-minded about it. I asked Robert if it's kind of scary having this newfound ability. It's not scary. I know that. I know we've been on a few of these things and some people kind of jump scare and things like that when something happens or whatever. But there's something I feel like might be there. All these lights are going off. These recordings are going off. And like again, I've only been on a couple of these things. We don't do it all the time, but it was just a special occasion type thing. But definitely wasn't like a jump scare like a few people. It was very calming. Maybe I just understood. Maybe I understand a little bit more now. I then asked Robert how his experience with his heart attack and his near-death experience has either reaffirmed, challenged, or changed his beliefs in what he feels regarding mortality and death and dying. It doesn't matter who you are and you talk about how tough you are and things like, oh, I'm not afraid of this. I'm not. Everyone has a fear of dying. There's some portion of you that's afraid of dying. And after this experience? I'm not. It was very comforting. It was, there was no pain. Robert even goes so far to saying that while he was experiencing his near-death experience, he was the best version of himself when he's alive. I was the person that I enjoyed being. The no, the no work stress, no money stress, the no, you know, this and that stress. There was no stress. There was no discomfort. There was no pain. There was, I just enjoyed thinking about the people I cared about. And I was happy. To the point where I was cracking jokes. So I don't have a bad experience in this at all. It was very comforting. Now, do I want to leave tomorrow? You know, no. But if it does, I, I'm not afraid of it. That's 100%. I'm definitely not afraid to die. 
I asked Robert how his experience having a heart attack and a near-death experience has affected the way that he lives. You know, people talk about this, the old saying, you know, take the little, we take the little things for granted. And that is so true. We're, we're here for a very short period of time. I, you know, we can, you can go into religious talk all you want to, but in the end, no one really knows uh, for sure. Um, at least I don't anyway. If someone does know, please call me and tell me. Uh, but I do know we're here for a short period of time, and it doesn't matter how old you are, how healthy you are, how far you hike, how far you run, how far you swim. It doesn't matter. Anything can happen, and it can happen quickly, and you're gone. I've learned to try to enjoy the small things again, uh, where before it's, um, you know, we always felt like we had to go somewhere or do something. Now it's uh, sit down, sitting, just sitting down on the couch with my girlfriend and watching a movie now means the world. Just spending time enjoying the people that mean something to you um if there's something you want to do and venture by all means go do it if you don't you will miss that opportunity you only have a small window here uh enjoy it i do know we have roughly you know say 80 years here so enjoy every minute of it and i've tried to do that i've tried to eat a little healthier definitely got back into gym doing some hiking plan on about a big one <laughs> Robert shares his hopes of thru-hiking the Appalachian Trail next year, and as someone who thru-hiked the Appalachian Trail in 2019, I couldn't be more excited for his upcoming journey. Yeah, that's a little bit of a story there. So I actually attempted this year, uh, and yeah, I didn't, didn't make it very far on that. I fell miserably on that. <laughs> I remind Robert that the end destination isn't always the goal. Sometimes just enjoying where you are and hiking every mile that you're able to is the whole point of the journey. I, I believe so. Uh, I definitely have a different outlook on a lot of things these days. Um, it, it just slow down. Enjoy. If you don't make it, enjoy what you had on it. Or it, it, whether it's a job, if you love your job, don't, you know, if your end goal is to be CEO of this company and you don't make it, that's okay. Enjoy what you had before. I then asked Robert if he was willing to share one tidbit, piece of advice, or just something to think about to leave the listener off with from this interview. What would it be? There's a quote that I was told, and it really means a lot. It, it says, find something that you love and let it kill you. Find something you want to do, um, bury yourself in it if you really want to, and let it take you over. Enjoy every moment that you're in that experience. I then asked Robert if he would be comfortable with me sharing where you can reach him on social media if you have a similar experience or if you have questions or if you simply wish to follow along with his thru-hike attempt of the Appalachian Trail next year. And his YouTube is Hiker Biker Klutz and his Instagram is Robert Webb with two Bs 750. I want to thank Robert so much for agreeing to come on the show. When I initially spoke with him, he told the story in such a way that made me really feel like he was awake and present for all of this experience, and I guess in a way, he actually really was. I also want to thank him for sharing his story with me. I know it can be hard talking about death and hard talking about times where we actually had to face our own mortality and our own looming death. I am so very thankful that Robert was open with not only sharing about his experience in the hospital, but some of the things that have changed about his life after the experience. And as someone who I believe experienced a near-death experience when I was very, very young, I would like to take some time to maybe share that story with you now. My brother and I are twins, and we were born very early, two months early to be exact, which means our respiratory systems, our lungs, were not quite ready to function fully when we were born. So both of us were placed in the neonatal ICU for over a month while we got stronger and healthier. 
Luckily for us, we were both released home after about five weeks in the ICU, and we went home with my parents. A few days after my brother and I's release from the hospital, my grandmother, my mother's mother, had this intense urge to come and visit us, just to put eyes on us and make sure we were doing okay. And boy, I'm very lucky that she had that urge and she decided that she needed to fulfill it. Because when they arrived to my house, I was not breathing. I was completely blue and I had no pulse, meaning that technically I too was dead. So my mother scooped me up as my grandparents threw us into the vehicle. My mother attempting CPR on a brand new baby, her brand new baby, who was just released from the ICU. They rushed me into the hospital, straight back into the neonatal ICU, where luckily for me, the staff on hand was able to resuscitate me and get my pulses back. I was diagnosed with RSV, which is a virus that can be particularly deadly for premature babies, because as we already know, my lungs were not fully developed when I was born. I was placed on a ventilator, which is a machine that is used to breathe for the patient, while the doctors attempted to heal me from the virus that had caused my heart to stop beating. I obviously made a full recovery, because I'm a healthy 33-year-old woman today. And my mom didn't tell me about this event until I pretty much pried it out of her. In 2012, I became suddenly obsessed with near-death experiences and read a bunch of PMH Atwater books. PMH Atwater is one of the original researchers in the field of near-death studies. And as I was reading, some of it really resonated with me. Like some people who have near-death experiences develop a psychic intuitiveness. Now, I'm not saying I became a psychic after I died when I was an infant, but there is one example that really, really hits home. In 1999, my mother's grandmother passed away suddenly from a stroke. And I remember it was right before Y2K. Later that week on New Year's Eve, I kept having this thought that I wish my great-grandmother could have seen the year 2000. If you were around back then, you know that Y2K was a big deal. And that night I went to sleep thinking of my great-grandmother. And I had this dream. Everything in this dream was like black and white, but it was blue and white. Kind of like some of that china that you see at your grandmother's house where it's a white plate with blue writing on it. That's kind of what the dream looked like. I just tell people it was black and white, except black was blue. It was blue and white. And I was in the living room of the house that I lived in at the time, in the dream, when suddenly the roof becomes a glowing white light, and down into our living room comes my great-grandmother Helen. And in this dream, she's holding a baby. And my mom knows the baby, and she knows my grandma Helen, we all give her a big hug. I tell her my sorrow for her not getting to see the new millennium. She kind of laughs because she is experiencing it in, you know, wherever she's at. And my mom gives a hug to this baby that's in my great grandmother's arms. In the dream, there were also some other people that came down with my grandmother Helen that I don't recognize. And even to this day, I couldn't tell you who they were. They were just a couple of older men and older women. And so I wake up from the dream, and I don't think anything of it until I start reading these books in 2012, so 13 years later. And I come home to visit my family from the military as I was serving in the Air Force at the time. And I tell my mom, I'm reading these books, and this stuff is resonating with me. Do I, you know, did something happen to me? I, I know I was sick when I was a baby. Did something bigger happen to me? At this point, my mom wells up with tears. She starts getting overly emotional and she tells me the story that not only was I sick, but I actually died. And my mom was doing CPR on me in the car 
on the way to the hospital. So to my amazement, it kind of confirms what I already knew, that I did develop some type of connection to the other side or some connection to this energy. And so I tell my mom about my dream. And in the dream, I tell her about the baby that she's holding. And for some reason, I'm calling him Kevin. Mom, who's Kevin? Now, in the real world, I have an Uncle Kevin on my dad's side. But I know that he's still alive. But her eyes well up with tears. She gives me a big hug. And she says, before I was pregnant with your older sister, I was pregnant with a baby that I lost. And we were going to name him Kevin after your uncle. So imagine my shock when I find out that not only did I have a dream of my great-grandmother right after thinking about her, but I dreamt of a boy, of a child, that I never knew existed until after I had the dream. And to this day, I cannot explain to you how or why I knew this information, why I had this vision when I was 11 years old, but there has to be a connection to the fact that I died as a baby. As I've gotten older, I didn't attempt to foster these abilities or this experience, and I just kind of moved on, and those kind of intuitive experiences tended to fade away. But maybe now that I'm diving back into this subject of embracing death and all facets of that, including the other side and psychic mediums and clairvoyance, maybe this is something that I will dive back into. That's pretty much it for the story. There's not much to it as... I was pretty young, don't remember much of it, but I do think it's interesting that both Robert and myself had these experiences where our heart stops, and then also these other experiences afterwards that kind of reaffirm that there's some type of connection or intuition to the other side or to this other aspect of energy that maybe I can't explain or I can't quantify. Once again, I want to thank Robert so much for taking the time to come on the show and share his story. And I want to thank you all for taking the time to listen to my little story as well, as I do think there is some type of connection there. And I want to thank you for taking the time to listen in to this very first episode of Embracing Death. And I hope you come back next week to see who I will be chatting with. If you have enjoyed today's episode, I just ask you to subscribe, leave a rating, share it with everyone you can, your dog, your dentist, your neighbor, your coworker. It would really mean a lot to me if we can try to get this podcast shared with as many people as possible. If you or someone you know has a unique relationship or experience relating to death and would be interested in sharing your story, I want to hear from you. So please send your stories to embracingdeathpodcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in to Embracing Death. The more we talk about death, the more we learn. The more we learn, the less we fear. And the less we fear, the more we can embrace not only death, but the lives we have yet to live. And as E.B. White says, after all, what is life anyway? We're born, we live a little while, and then we die. I hope to see you next week on Embracing Death.